I am with Ralph Metzner, PhD, who is a recognized pioneer in studies of consciousness and its transformation. He is a psychotherapist and professor emeritus at the California Institute of Integral Studies, where he was also academic dean for 10 years in the 1980s. He collaborated with Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert in the studies of psychedelic drugs at Harvard in the 1960s and co-authored The Psychedelic Experience. He has written several books and he and I have already had a talk for Future Primitive in December. So I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome him again, Ralph, and and I'm also mm-hmm. very grateful that that you're willing to do this again. So Absolutely. I look forward to it and it was a pleasure the last time, so it'll be again. Good. So, Ralph, perhaps you would like to start by uh, giving your website. Yes. Well, I have two websites, actually. One is uh, uh, 3W's greenearthfound.org, which is short for Green Earth Foundation, which is a nonprofit that I have. And then, um, um, and then the other one is metzneralchemicaldivination.org, focused mm-hmm. on this program. I call a chemical divination, which I teach, and um, which is a way of accessing inner sources of knowledge and guidance for healing and uh, uh, practical problem solving and uh, visioning for your future. So that's those are the two websites. So. so I have here in my little hands this book that you were kind enough to send me, which is called, and that you wrote, which is called The Expansion of Consciousness. It's a book book that was recently published, and um, I'd love to talk about that with you today. Okay. So, um, it's actually one of the projected series of six short books, all under 100, 100, 100 pages, which um, I'm writing and which um, Green Earth Foundation is self-publishing. Yes. And um, it's based on writings that I have been uh, working on over the last 10, 15 years approximately, um, but then up, rewriting them and updating them and adding new materials. So this first one contains two essays and one is uh, one that I wrote. Um, it's a history of basically of alchemy and the, the alchemical tradition, which is like the shamanic and yogic traditions with systems of transformation and and how that um, uh, and that's based on a talk I gave at a conference for Albert Hoffman in 2006, and yes. um, where I talked about the role of the discovery of psychedelics and what that means for the alchemical tradition because. And I argue that basically, uh, where we call Jung um, up, updated or brought the alchemical tradition into the modern world by showing that it 
like the psychological language of the psyche, of psychological transformation. But he didn't know about the material aspect, and actually alchemy is a holistic system that includes the material and the emotional and mental aspects of our being. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hoffman, by discovering accidentally and synchronistically, was able to re-establish that connection, even though he didn't know anything about alchemy. <laughs> so sometimes I say that Hoffman's discovery of LSD was a, which interestingly enough, you know, is listed as one of. I worked with the History Channel, and the History Channel is a database of key events, mm -hmm. year by year and decade by decade. So uh -huh. for each year, they have key geopolitical events, like about ten or twelve of them per year. In 1943, they have Albert Hoffman discovers LSD as one of the key, one dozen key events in that year, which is pretty interesting, I thought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting because it was a discovery that was a synchronicity and a serendipity, because a serendipity means an unexpected discovery with fortunate consequences. Yes. And synchronicity, yeah, and which it was, you know, it was unexpected. And, <laughs> yes. and it was a surprise to yeah. everybody, including Hoffman. Yeah. He yeah. had no idea that such a thing could exist. Yes. Uh, and there was this pe peculiar synchronicity with the atom bomb and uh, the development of the atom bomb, which many people have remarked on and, and which he himself recognized uh, because, you know, the atom bomb was Enrico Fermi did mm -hmm. the first nuclear chain reaction in 1943 in March or something like that. And then Hoffman uh, rediscovered the effects of LSD in August, like three months later. Yes. And... Uh, so it's almost as if the discovery of nuclear energy and then the explosion of the atomic bomb was um, was a kind of a tipping point. It's almost like kind of a divine intervention. Yes, yes. Yeah, you know, always imagine like the guiding forces of our species something. Oh, shit! You know they've discovered the bomb. We better <laughs> give them something. Yes. And in many ways, I mean, in a good way. Uh, LSD and other psychedelics act like a bomb on on the uh, psyche, not in a destructive way, yes. but in a way of deconstructing one's worldview. I don't think anyone can take a psychedelic and remain with their worldview intact. It's not possible, you know. Um, and uh, that can lead to very positive changes. Of course, it's not guaranteed because some people aren't prepared, but if you are prepared and you're open to it, um, it can have profound consequences. So that's what I wanted to bring out in the first essay. And then uh -huh. in the second one, I look at, well, you know, it's the notion of consciousness. So consciousness expansion means that you become aware of the larger context of your life and your actions and your environment, your relationship, the situation you're in. And that increases the choices you can make. Yes. So, um, you know, and it increases freedom of choice and, and, and the ability, and it's empowering. Yeah. And so then... Um, it occurred to me that that um, if you look at that in the uh, collective consciousness expansion, the, the world view of the whole society, of course, society is, has many layers and subcultures and strata and so forth, but we can talk about a kind of a mass consciousness or like that. And in the 60s, 1960s, there was like a an explosion of uh, consciousness that happened. Sometimes people will be referred to it as a consciousness revolution. Yeah. And starting with Hoffman's discovery of LSD in the 1940s, yes. at the end of World War II, at the climax of World War II, then 
I could see in every decade, 40s, 50s, 60s, and so forth, mm-hmm. a kind of um, a working out of a process, this process of consciousness expanding. How did that develop, you see? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so LSD was first discovered and then immediately used by the military and by the psychiatric establishment. Right. And um, very few psychiatrists, far-seeing psychiatrists, that began to think of it, well, maybe it has some possible therapeutic uses as well, but yeah. it was kind of underground. And then in the 50s, some very interesting events happened where Gordon Wasson discovered, rediscovered the mushroom cult of the Aztecs after it had been you know, extinct and published an article in Life magazine saying all these sacred mushrooms, which may be at the core of every religion, <laughs> still exist, and there's experiences still exist, which was like, and published in Life magazine, yeah. which was read by five million people. Yes. So in the 1950s, I say, well, this was like a connecting to the shamanic roots. Yes. All of a sudden, people became aware there's this long tradition of sacred plants and practices that that of a spiritual nature among so-called primitive people, you see. Yes, <laughs> That we yes, all yes. look down on. What do, what do they know? You know, we're so advanced. And right. Like that. See, originally I thought I was, I'm very influenced by Gurdjieff, and I thought it was oh. a, like an octave, uh, an octave progression. You know, he uh-huh. says all these processes of transformation go through seven steps like an octave. And at three and four, you, at step three and four, the third and fourth note, you have a powerful, external shock that kind of boosts the whole system uh-huh. and so and I didn't end up doing that following through with it but I thought it was interesting that if the 40s and the discovery of LSD and Hoffman and so forth is that the, if that's the beginning that's the first note and then the 50s is the second mm-hmm. looking into the shamanic roots then the 60s would be the third you see mm-hmm. and then there was this powerful external additional impetus which was not only the discovery of the mushrooms <clears throat> but then Terence McKenna and his brother publishing books that enabled people to grow their own mushrooms very readily. <laughs> right. And LSD being manufactured and being available to lots of people. Mm-hmm. See, up to that point, uh, all this kind of work was kept, you know, either to within a kind of a elite, offbeat psychiatry or the military. <laughs> right. Not that right. many people have access to it, mm-hmm. or people in Mexico in the mountains, <laughs> again, not that many people have access to it. And all of a sudden, thousands of people could have access to it. And uh, then, of course, um, our project at Harvard and, 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 and then projects of Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters in the 60s, and, right. uh, leading to tremendous popularization. Mm-hmm. In which case, I think, actually, the Kesey groups, you know, contributed much more to popularization than our project did, you know, because we were kind of stuffy middle-class <laughs> professionals. What do, what do we know? You know yeah. We ran small groups of 10, 12 people. Uh-huh. They, they ran groups of thousands. <laughs> That's right. That's in the right. electric Kool-Aid acid test. So, mm-hmm. uh, But anyway, once the cat was uh, out of the bag, so to speak, you couldn't put it back in. Yes. With a genie out of the bottle. Yes. And... Um, uh, and it was a tremendous flowering. I now don't really, I don't really octave progression, but I, I did, you know, towards the end of my book, Rick Tarnas came out yes. with his book, Cosmos on Psyche, where he really talks about the planetary aspect patterns. And uh, and I think those, um, those patterns are a very interesting kind of um, confirmation, lateral confirmation of some of the trends I was seeing. Mm-hmm. By the way, you know, if a, 
Have you seen Across the Universe? Yes. By Julie Tamer? Yes, I love it. I think it's a beautiful film. It's like a, it's a perfect description of the 60s, portrayal of the 60s, I think, of the spirit of it. And not only the lightheartedness and the beauty and the flowering, but also the, the tragedy and the depth and the confrontation with war and exactly. racism and all of that. All of that so. Highly recommend that movie. It's marvelous. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to uh, go back to the um, criminalization of LSD. And we were in the 60s decade, you and I, at mm -hmm. this moment. And mm. uh, I feel that um, the movie Across the Universe ends exactly when Timothy Leary's imprisonment begins. And mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, uh, mm. I'd love to talk about the juxtaposition of the criminalization of LSD, although Timothy wasn't arrested for LSD. Uh, uh -huh. He was arrested for zero zero point one grams of marijuana in the ashtray of his car, mm. and i like to, to make mm. that clear. But mm -hmm. anyway, the criminalization of LSD and the... Well, and all psychedelics. Yeah. Not just LSD, psilocybin, that's been the whole thing, the whole bag. Exactly. They're all coming life. 1964, basically. Right, right. And in 1969, the, uh, the arrest and imprisonment of Timothy Leary, mm. which came after the mm. assassinations that uh, mm. Mm -hmm. I feel affected mm -hmm. our, our spirit very much. Yeah. Right. So if right. you'd like to comment. Yeah. Yeah, well, psychedelics moved out of being, see, I, the way I see now, and, and, and of course Ram Dass and I have, have written this book about that whole period too, but the, the uh, our group assignment, so to speak, was to find a way to, to uh, that middle class professions of psychology, psychiatry, medicine, and religion, um, because we did studies with religious professionals, could somehow, uh, and artists, yes. artists, could somehow find a cultural form to contain these very uh, powerful experiences that went beyond just doing, you know, another method of therapy, which is okay. But Tim felt, and I and I agree with him, that, that um, it was too much. There was, it was far too valuable that the container of psychotherapy was one container, but not the only one. Yes. And and and, and certainly Ken Kesey and his group never gave that one another thought. That was not their interest at all. Mm -hmm. They were interested in creativity enhancement. Mm -hmm. And um, so, um, anyway, you know, so we worked with religious professionals and all of that and tried to find a cultural form and then yeah, yeah. Uh, that could be... But it was, you know, in that sen in one sense, mm -hmm. we failed, and uh, you know, we didn't succeed in getting something. Uh, you could compare it, for example, like I used to, uh, to the Native American Church adopting peyote, or yes. from Mexico, and the Native American tribes wanted to use it, and they created a church. And the Native American Church is allowed to use peyote to this day, yes, <laughs> uh, yes. which is a powerful hallucinogen that's illegal for everybody else in every other context. Uh -huh. And uh, but no, we weren't able to do that. It was we didn't have any experience in doing that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I used to think we failed in that form, and right. you know, and the drug the drugs becoming illegal sort of suggests that, but. You know, when Rondas and I talked about this, we well, we both agreed, and he had in another sense we didn't fail because th these psychedelics have become part of the culture, 
and um, they had not become a legitimate form uh, other than, you know, very limited uh, psychiatric research forms, which mm-hmm. is starting again, which is okay, which is mm-hmm. a good sign. Forty years later, the uh, psychiatric research would be being done and studies of religious experience and being done and therapy with MDMA and for post-traumatic stress disorder and, you know, all these projects are happening all over the place. But in the meantime, there is a flourishing subculture and uh, that exists, that involves, you know, serious people, intelligent people, not dropouts, not flaky hippies and yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, mainstream journalists like to think of a decade as a misguided attempt of spaced out hippies, you know, escaping their responsibilities, all of which is completely false. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, maybe, maybe not completely false. I mean, maybe there were some people like that, but yep. there have always been people like that. Yeah. But um, what I began to see about the 60s that yes. that struck me was this concept of consciousness expansion, and that's what I wanted to pursue in the in the book. Um, mm-hmm. That at the collective level, there were in the 60s there were six or seven movements of social or cultural transformation, all of which could be seen as as consciousness expanding movements. Um, now, Ted Rozak used the concept of the counterculture, which is a very interesting concept, uh, like a countercurrent that kind of goes against the mainstream culture. Yes. However, what occurred to me was, uh, when you look into it more closely, mm-hmm. the counterculture, um, there is that kind of a dynamic, mm-hmm. but that's not the intention behind these movements. Mm-hmm. Like, the anti- take the anti-war movement. So the anti-war movement is opposed to the war. But and wants to stop the war and wants to stop the killing and the bleeding and so forth in, in Vietnam then and in Iraq now. Yes. And, you know, uh, but that's not uh, that's not the aim or the ultimate intention. What's the ultimate intention is not to be against something, yes. but to establish a situation of peace. You see, when yes. Martin Luther King said, "I have a dream. I want to see," uh, and the same with the civil rights movement. It's not to Against yes, it's against discrimination in the short run, uh-huh. but in the long run, his dream was to see black children, white children go to school together peacefully. Right. And uh, right. the anti-war warriors want to live in peace and raise their children in peace and mm-hmm. have their economy in peace and all of those kinds of things. But so, um, in order to do that, they have to be in opposition or resistance to the mainstream push. Um, and so there's this dynamic that gets set up. Um, but um, so then, then um, so the anti-war movement and the civil rights environmental movement started in the 60s. Yeah. You know, I thought it was another striking synchronicity that Rachel Carson's book, The Silent Spring, yes. uh, was yes. 1963. That was the yes. same year that you know that we were doing our studies at Harvard. Yes. And not not she didn't take LSD. I'm not arguing that. But, yeah. Right. right. Um, but the silent spring refers to a consciousness expansion effect. Yes, yes. Right? All of a yes. sudden people say, well, where are the birds? And, so, and then you look around and you say, well, there's this hidden pollution that's in the air uh-huh. and in the, in the environment. And, 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 and she got into a lot of trouble with that and she was attacked by the industrial corporations and so on. But she made people aware. Her book was seen as the beginning of the American environmental movement. And the environmental movement 
it's like you expand consciousness, what do you become conscious of? You look around you and say, well, we're polluting the air and the water, and we don't want to do that. Yes. We want to live yes. like that. So you have to make more choices. You make different choices. <sighs> a lot of psychedelic activists that I know became environmental activists. Yes. They said, well, then they were work, working for the environment and cleaning up the ecosystem. Um, as you do, and, uh, as you so, have. What? As you like do. I do, yeah. Yes. I went that same path of development, and many, many others did. So the uh, the anti-war movement, which really you could say the peace movement and the civil rights movement, and then the environmental movement, and then the women's movement. See, the women got together and had consciousness-raising groups. It's a very right. similar concept. Right. Right. They got together and said, well, who are we, you know, besides being somebody's uh, mother or daughter or sister or wife or spouse or like that, mistress, <laughs> you know, what's our real identity apart from that? And to raise consciousness. And in women's liberation, they talked about women's liberation, liberating ourselves from the, the presupposed, so this is the way it's supposed to, this is what you're supposed to do and, you know, just raise your children and keep the house and like that. Yeah. <laughs> Don't have any opinions. You know? yeah, Be quiet. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> Do what you're told. Yes. Yes, yes shut up. Yeah. Shut up and buy stuff. Yeah. You know? Not going to uh, happen. And then there was... What? I'm saying not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's too late for that. Anyway. Although, you know, there's there's plenty of groups who'd like to bring back those days. That's for sure. And uh, So the, the struggle is ongoing, which is okay. So that's another movement. And then there was a sexual revolution, and that was facilitated by the contraceptive pill, no doubt. You see, then you could connect sexuality that's from reproduction. You could yes. have sex for reproduction, but you could also have sex just for its own sake. Uh, Kinsey, see, published yes. his two books on behavior, the sexual behavior. Entomologist, you know, a bug specialist. And right. He, he was clear that he wasn't talking about love, and you know, he was talking about sexual behavior. Yes. And uh, so you had facts. He said facts are wonderful if you can, you know, in terms of recognizing facts you didn't recognize before, can have a consciousness expanding effect. All of a sudden, people had could make all kinds of choices that they couldn't make before, and so the sexual revolution meant not that people necessarily were having more sex, but but that they were <laughs> questioning the hitherto kind of automatically, unconsciously accepted conventional ways of living together in families and... and, and uh, relating uh, sexually. Yeah, relating that way. And instead experimented with communities of various kinds, which is a venerable American tradition. You know, the, <laughs> the intentional community movement is, was very strong in the 18th and 19th century. Right. Century, um, so you had all these communities like the farm in Tennessee, and mm-hmm. you know in Millbrook we had a community, and um, and then finally I think the so those uh, another movement of consciousness expanding was just basically the cultural one, you know, mm-hmm. experimenting with new artistic forms of expression. Mm-hmm. So in the sexual revolution, there's also counter counter the old way of doing things, the old way of looking at things, not because they were necessarily bad, but because they were limiting, you see. And you wanted to limiting. have more choices that could be more productive, more constructive, and yeah. Yeah. Um, not... 
And that's why I don't, you know, um, and we, you and I have talked about this before, I don't agree with the people who still say, um, you know, Tim Tim was a rebel, he liked to tear down and mm-hmm. was a higher thing. I don't see that in him at all, and I don't think he saw it in himself either. No. I think he was a, like a pioneer. He wanted to open up new possibilities. Well, he said and he... new possibilities, you have, to, you have to question the existing structures. Well, he you said know. he was a visitor from the future. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think what we would call a pioneer, you know, like an explorer who discovered some new possibilities. That's right. Says, well, you know, if you're going to just, you know, explore these new possibilities, you have to let go of your own home comfortable environment and take some equipment and tools with you and be open-minded about it. Well, I have to tell you a little story right here. The day he got freed from prison, the next Hmm. day we went to New Mexico and uh, we went to... From the the second prison thing. Oh, yeah, the second imprisonment after three and a half years of of, uh, quasi-solitary confinement. Oh, you should right. you should have seen him eat the night he was released from prison. He was just yeah. he was just smearing the food on his mouth on his. <laughs> he was in he heaven. He was ravenous, huh? Yeah. For something that's better than prison food. That's know. right. But I, we went I to we went to New Mexico, and uh, we w- we actually went to Los Alamos, and spent wow. the night in a motel in Los Alamos. And I remember so clearly two things that happened. One is I left the bath running, and you know this was in nineteen. Uh, this was in nineteen seventy-six, and I left mm-hmm. the the water in the bath running. And he came to me and he said, "You mustn't do that because water is extremely precious." And I mean that was early on for somebody it's to mention that precious and rare, yes. Yeah, right. and mm. the other mm. thing was that he he brushed his teeth once mm. with the right hand and once with his left hand because he right. believed in che- in not having habits. So I just wanted to put that in there. Right. Yes. I I remember we were talking about things like that in in. In Millbrook. Yes. Uh, that was something like Gurdjieff suggested, you know, doing, to overcome habitual behavior patterns, do things differently, you know, tie your shoelaces a different way than you used right. to tie it. Right, right, right. <laughs> to be kind of impossible or very difficult. Um, uh, so it's interesting that he, you know, carried those practices forward into that time. Well, all of his and, life, uh, yeah. So, now, yeah. can we go... T- can we go to shamanism and drumming? Yes. And perhaps the bilateral yeah. connection in the mind? Right. Well, um, for me, the interesting thing was um, in the late 60s when I became aware of the work of people like Michael Horner, you know, and uh, Terrence McKenna and others, and, uh-huh. um, but particularly Horner, who pioneered this, um, the rediscovery of the kind of core shamanic, what he calls a core shamanic practice of the shamanic journey. Yes. And the shamanic journey is a way of talking about an altered state. It's an altered state, basically, of consciousness is like a shamanic journey. Yes. As a beginning, as a certain duration, usual experiences, and then, you know, it has an end and you come back. Mm -hmm. So, and his 
way of looking at and in the in the shamanic traditions the two main ways of inducing a shamanic journey altered states are either the psychoactive plants or mushrooms yes. or the rhythmic drumming and um Michael used to think that um you know the rhythmic drumming uh, I, I think he still does the rhythmic drumming method is more more widespread and earlier but but I what well, the way I look at it is that the the, the rhythmic drumming method is uh, more widespread in the northern hemisphere of um, Asia you know it comes from Siberia mm-hmm. word jam it comes from Siberia uh, northern Europe, northern Asia, northern North America, and um, whereas the plant methods come from the tropics, you know, because there's the plants there like South America, Mexico, and Africa, and so forth, and, and uh, just just a greater variety of plants. But the basic idea that is common to all these methods is that the the journey uh, or altered state is undergone for a purpose. So that's the emphasis on intention. Mm-hmm. or what Tim used to call set, you know, set and setting. Mm-hmm. You don't just do it for a trip. I mean, that's okay. I mean, you can do it. People obviously do it. But the shamanic traditions always do it for a purpose, and the purpose usually is either healing mm-hmm. or obtaining guidance, like divination, what I would call divination, yes. obtaining knowledge yes. and, uh, for healing oneself or the family or the tribe or, or someone mm-hmm. in the situation or getting a vision. Like in the vision quest, you, you know, you pray for a vision that's like, what to do, how to live your life, uh-huh. your work, or your, you know, your future. Healing is more past-oriented and prom- vision guidance, more future-oriented, like mm-hmm. that. But what I appreciated about learning from Arner was that the idea that you become clear about your intention, and then you invoke the spirits. Mm-hmm. You invoke the spirits to help you. And we didn't know anything about that at Harvard. You know, they right. teach you about spirits. Right, right. <laughs> spirits don't exist, right? In uh-huh. our, according to Harvard's worldview. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so that was, you know, and, and and that's recognizing that you have a whole other worldview, um, and then you know your reality changes <laughs> yeah. once you really think about. When I was at CIS. I often used to teach courses on worldviews, you know, and people were often surprised to think, oh, I have a worldview? Geez, I didn't even know I had one. <laughs> you see, yeah. it's, your, it's your, what is your worldview? Yeah. What are your basic assumptions about what's the nature of reality, your human systems. being, and where do we come from, and, and, you know, where are we going? So, and then one of the things I often say is that what we're going through in our time is a worldview transition in many ways, the worldview that we're going towards is a kind of a systems worldview, a relational worldview that's much more akin to some of the traditional indigenous worldviews where like a web of life where everything is interconnected and that's what you focus on rather than the individuals, you know, the particular kind of individual who's like a a free actor and just does whatever he or she chooses to do. we're always embedded in a web of relations, so everything we do, think, feel is, is is a function of, you know, we're affected by the relations that we have with others, and we affect them. So, thank you for including me in your web of relations. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's an insight that anybody who has, you know, had a psychedelic experience, I think, can readily confirm and affirm for for themselves, and that then. And, and then you think about 
the the art of state, you see, as giving you a kind of a preview or a vision of what's possible and what you might do, but the real work comes in in the application afterwards. So mm-hmm. there's there's nothing like a magic pill that you know solves all your problems for you. It's ridiculous to think that it is. Even even if MDMA or LSD is used for the treatment of PTSD, it's not just taking it. <laughs> it's like taking it and seeing, and then what do you do? You know, what? How do you think differently, and how do you relate differently? Um, how do you lead your life differently? How do you bring to your... And so that's the potential, I think, that the shamanic revival brings back into into modern society and modern culture. Ralph, would you talk about uh, MDMA and the expansion of the heart and shuriken? Yeah. Yes. Well, um, I, you know, that sort of happened in the 80s. It was kind of interesting because in many ways there was a kind of, an, on the social, you know, the social cultural society level, there was a kind of a repeat in the 80s of the experiences we all had in the 60s. Mm-hmm. I sometimes say, like, you know, twice in my life I became a felon, uh, not because <laughs> I did anything uh, <laughs> criminal that hurt people, <laughs> but because suddenly what I was doing was defined as being illegal. <laughs> yes. Uh, for I had nothing to do with somebody being hurt or harmed or complaining. Yeah. So um, political reasons, basically. And that happened with LSD, and then and, and it happened again. MDMA was discovered, um, and um, you know, by Shogun, and and then used by therapists, including this wonderful therapist that I knew, called Leo Zeff, who's since uh, died, but um, uh-huh. and then who trained a number of other therapists in his use and in its use. And uh, um, I think, uh, as a therapeutic tool, as an adjunct of psychotherapy, and it's actually far superior to LSD mushrooms or any any other drug because uh-huh. it it has a consciousness expanding effect but only on the emotional band uh-huh. it doesn't give you visions of other realities or other worlds it's very much this reality oriented so but it gives you this sense of i call it um, empathogenic generating a state of empathy is the key to psychological change uh, and as the key to all forms of effective forms of therapy, that is um, a balanced emotional state where you you feel related to another person's emotional state, but you're not climbing into it like mm-hmm. sympathy. You, you know, you think that sympathy might be kind of more of an unconscious connection emotionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, two people might cry together. You know, yes. we have a good cry together like that, yeah. which is good, but you know, it doesn't really lead to any. But in empathy, you have. You feel like the other, but you also understand, have an understanding, and you also remember that you are not the other, yeah. and that you are, in fact, you know, and, and, and you can, if you can have empathy towards your own former self, you see, yeah. that, that would be the key to working with trauma and past trauma. And there was a woman who testified on television. It was a, she was a patient of, of a psychiatrist, and she was... Um, you know, brutally raped and had a, uh, to the extent that she had a complete amnesia to the actual events of the rape. She had, uh-huh. you know, panic attacks and flashbacks and nightmares and disturbed relations and so forth. And and through her MDMA experiences, she was able to reconstruct the subjective feeling that had been disconnected 
and then you know the nightmares and the flashbacks and the panic attacks uh, were resolved. And I think so. Then MDMA therapy was so appealing to, and 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 made people made such breakthroughs. And I, I published a whole book of collections of essays called Through the Gateway of the Heart. Yes. About that, and yes. books have been published since then. But then what happened was interesting because it was kind of a repeat of the '60s. Because with LSD, because then people, this is great, you know, people who experienced it in therapy. But this is too good. I know, you know, I don't want to be somebody's therapy patient in order to experience this. Mm-hmm. I want to take it with my husband or wife or partner or friend, yeah. you know, and and deepen our bond with one another. And so there was a push to kind of. Uh, go beyond the confines of the therapeutic environment, mm-hmm. and and so you know uh, the old spirit of entrepreneurial capitalism. If there's a need, then somebody will rise to meet it. Yeah. So people, you know, some people figured out how to make it. It's not that difficult, and started marketing it. Then yeah. it drew the attention of the authorities. Yeah. You know, it's not that they didn't care as long as people were just having insights and empathy in their therapy sessions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they could care less. They don't even notice. But when people are selling a drug and making a lot of money from it, yeah. then that interests them. And that's exactly what happened in the 60s, you see, with LSD. Mm-hmm. So there were he, and, you know, claims of, oh, it damages your brain and, you know, genes and all that thing. Uh, it was like an eerie kind of replay of the same arguments and, and just positioning uh, everything to the to this day, you know, and then it was made illegal. Yeah. And, uh, and it went underground. So the, the overall dynamic that I now see, you know, at the end of the uh, that second essay that yes. I talk about this, uh, there's, a, there's an empire, there's a system, there's an existing system of domination, I would say, I call yeah. it dom- a domination system of the ruling, you know, that have their agenda. And then there's this cult- cultural m- movement of resistance against that because people don't feel they want to be dominated. They want to have more choices and they want to make their own choices, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. in areas like peace and civil women and family and creativity and all yeah. like, like yeah. that. Yeah. And so there is a kind of a... And then then there's a counter-movement to that, yeah. which is what we call the empire strikes back. Yes. So then you, know, then you have more police state and more controls and more stringent laws and more violence and like that and go back and forth it goes. Well, you you say and in then your what book, is the outcome? So I'm sorry. You say in your the, book the, that the, yeah. the drug war continues defying logic, justice, and common sense. Yeah, yeah, because because you know numerous studies have been done you know the drug war doesn't work that drug abuse is increasing and continuing the same as before mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not diminishing and uh, you know thousands of people are in jail for crimes without victims at great expense yeah. so and people say it doesn't make sense you know anybody who looks at it it doesn't make sense it's a stupendous waste of money it's a stupendous waste of people's lives human lives. so you got to think there's something else maintaining it you see and uh, it's 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 all about money. It has to do with money. Mm-hmm. And actually, that I think the psychedelics are not even part of the drug war. They just they're just accidentally because except for marijuana because it's kind of in the mid, in the middle area because the the amounts of uh, you know the amounts of numbers of people taking psychedelics are minuscule compared to people involved in cocaine or or heroin or any of these other things. 
including cannabis and marijuana. So, but you know they are illegal, and people do go to jail. So, um, and they are caught up in that whole thing. I think it, it's an unmitigated. I know I'm. I agree with those people who say it's an unmitigated disaster. Yeah. And I don't actually come to think that the whole our whole approach and understanding as a society to psychedelics is not going to change until the whole drug war is abolished and yeah. prohibition is abolished. Prohibition, and instead yes. of that, you have... I just can't imagine, you know, people having a good way to take psychedelics somewhere and then still busting people for marijuana and little old ladies in wheelchairs and <laughs> people with cancer and patients and yeah. AIDS. Uh, like that, and throwing them in jail, I just I can't imagine. I wouldn't want to do it <laughs> myself. No. So, but, you know, uh, it's possible. I mean, in the 19th century, the United States didn't have drug prohibition. Yeah, that's you right. You could get access to any drug, heroin, whatever. You know, yeah. and it's not it's not like, you know, you're going to pass it out at street corners, but it's it's available, and, and it's regulated. Of course it's regulated. And, and Tim himself, you know, people often think... Passing it out, he testified in Congress that there should be a kind, some kind of regulatory framework mm-hmm. where people could be licensed and could show, just like you have a driver's license or a pilot's license, you have to be, you have to be demonstrate that you know how to use the equipment. Yeah, <laughs> and you know yeah. the danger to yourself and others. Yeah. you know, and then you can access it. There are two things that I'd love to talk about with you. Yes. And one is the, the, as you mentioned in your book, the presence of highly advanced civilizations visiting Earth. Yes. And the right. implications of that on global consciousness. Yes. Yes. So please speak. Thank you for asking me the question. And then about the film. I want to tell you about the film. To, I want to hear about the film, of course. Okay. Uh, those two things. Yeah. So the presence of uh, UFOs and ETs, extraterrestrial civilizations, yep. in uh, that's a consciousness expanding experience. You see, uh, it, in fact, that. it's the yeah. most profound and far-reaching consciousness expanding experience of our time that far exceeds any other. Because yes, here's the thing: if you, um, and this came to me when I was watching a film shown on Mexican television because in 19, 2004, not so long ago, uh-huh. there were massive sightings of UFOs in the night sky over Mexico City. It was seen by millions of people. Uh-huh. So the Mexican military, dozens of them, in for flying information, the Mexican military, instead of trying to shoot them down or you know ridicule it, called television stations and said, oh, here it is. And so it was shown on primetime television. Mm-hmm. Th- millions of people saw it. Wow. Uh, there's this film where they think in the Mexican, the commentator saying, here, you can see, uno, dos, tres, you know, <laughs> uh, half a dozen, you're flying information across the night sky. Yes. Uh, so you at night, uh, during the day, the, the, you see the shining metallic disc. At nighttime, you usually just see uh, a burning sphere, like a fiery orb. So once you see that and you recognize, okay, so we're being visited, by an advanced extraterrestrial non-hostile. They weren't dropping any bombs or shooting down anybody, killing anybody. Mm-hmm. People see these, they never have any fear. Now, there are this subset of abduction scenarios, but I'm not talking about the yeah. regular sightings, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and you recognize, you know, this is like a fact, you see. You recognize this is a fact, we're being visited, and the, by, at me, uh, this is a, 
highly advanced civilization that has a science and technology way way beyond ours because we can't go anywhere. We would yeah. barely make it to the moon or Mars. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so the fact that they're here means that they, have, they know something a lot more than we do. Mm. And that, of course, is what freaks the ruling classes and the military out. And, and uh, you know, there's all that stories about why they're being kept secret and all of that. But the consensus is that we are being visited and we have been visited by advanced, several, not just one, mm-hmm. several advanced extraterrestrial civilizations. Maybe have been for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And maybe they've played a role in our history, in our culture, way back to ancient times. In fact, my, my next book is about that, too. So, mm-hmm. um, And so once that is recognized worldwide, or at the moment it's only recognized by some people. Yes experience or who've bothered to study the subject. Mm -hmm. Um, If that were recognized worldwide, and there are signs that the the secrecy around it is being slowly lifted, that it would be the most significant event in the history of civilization, because nothing like that has ever happened. Mm -hmm. It would far exceed even, you know, the shifting from an Earth-centered to a Sun-centered worldview, Mm -hmm. because it's even... because you know, because it means that there are other species of intelligent life mm-hmm. beyond ours mm-hmm. in the universe and present on Earth. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that would change science, it would change technology, change energy. Uh, so just take energy, for example. The ships that are sighted, they're not using fossil fuels. Number one, they're totally silent. Yes. And they're not, they're not using fossil fuels. They're not yes, using right. nuclear energy either. Right, right of energy that we don't have. Uh, Ralph. And uh, would change religion and everything. How has it changed you to recognize that we are being visited and uh, to see Well, I think it's incredibly exciting. I think it's incredibly exciting. I haven't seen any UFOs myself flying in the sky. Most of my experiences have been inner inner experiences. Mm Um, which I think is all connected to that. You know, some people say they're not really from other worlds, they're from other dimensions. But I say they've got to be from other dimensions in order to come from other worlds. <laughs> because on this dimension, you can't get here, you know. Like the nearest star is Alpha Centauri is four light years away. It would take 150,000 years to get there. Excellent. So it can't be done. Yeah. The, uh, it can only be done if it's extra, uh, if you have interdimensional travel as well. as uh, So... So I think it's, I'm, you know, my prayer at the moment is that I'll be around when there's, that I'll still be around when there's worldwide recognition of extraterrestrial contact and presence. And because uh, uh, I think it's going to be very exciting. It's not like they're going to rescue us from our stupid mistakes, you know. Yeah. We have to do our part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, well, anyway. We'll so can talk. I tell you about the film? I was going to say, We'll talk about this on Future Primitive when it becomes world news. Yes, absolutely. Good. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, interesting, too, in terms of Tim. Tim and I never talked about this, but, um, I mean, he was interested in space migration. Yes, very much. See, I, which never really interested me that much, but it's interesting that now... I'm, and he had the concept of exopsychology, you see. Yes. The psychology of traveling in space. But I'm interested in exopsychology of our relations with aliens. 
Yes, yes, yes. Uh, here, you know, in space or here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, of course, here is in space too. So, so the film that I wanted to yeah. uh, and this that I wanted to tell you about. Shall I tell you about this? Oh yes, this very came, much this, so. Yeah. So this came to me, uh, and it came to me that I that I should tell you about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it came to me actually some work I was doing with. Um, Eduardo Luna in Manaus, Brazil, mm-hmm. with an, uh, an it was an ayahuasca kind of seminar, yes. where I got to take ayahuasca with him. He's a you know very knowledgeable um, anthropologist, and, and uh, in those sessions, um, you know, I had a variety of experiences, that, uh, and all of a sudden, in this, one of this, there were all these intense kind of visual. Hallucinations, I suppose you could say them. Mm-hmm. There was this idea for a film that came through, and it was just like a the seed of a story, and then a title, and it was so unusual that I kind of lost it after a while, uh-huh. and then I kind of asked for it again, and it came again. Yes. And I just sort of get the title, and then the title I could hold on to, and then I could reconstruct the story afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then I thought, for a while, then I thought, well, this is kind of absurd, you know what? What's the point of? I, I kind of talk to my guides that way. You know, what's what's the point of giving me a film title because I'm not a filmmaker. I don't know any filmmakers. <laughs> and what are the chances? You know, uh-huh. I mean, if if it's the title for a book, that's one thing. But yeah. you know, like that. So, but then I thought, well, who am I to question? You know, I never know. Yeah. Maybe somehow I'll meet someday. I'll meet a story or who. Who got the same same idea for a similar story? You see, uh-huh, uh-huh. or who wants to make a film, and so that's why I thought I should mention it on your program. Yes, because somebody may hear it there and like that. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me. I suppose you will not be able to tell us what the title is or any of the. Yes, yes. No, yes. I'm going to tell you what the title is. The yeah. title is this: uh, It's the hijacking of the testosterone factory. And it's interesting, in the group that I was in, somebody else, when I mentioned it, said, I got the same story. Wow. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, you know. So he, he, the testosterone factory is actually a media thing. Uh-huh. And what it does, it, it, it pumps images into the society through the media that stimulate testosterone. Testosterone is connected with sexuality and violence. Yeah. Uh, aggression. Yeah. So what that means is that the media are constantly pushing out, pushing out into the mainstream media, television, newspapers, films, everything that associates sexuality and violence. You yes. turn on, I once did this, you turn on television every single night. There was like a series of images on television, you know, the breast and a knife or a leg oh, and a gun like yeah. that. Yeah. Stimulating testosterone, um, stimulating violence and sexuality connected. Yes. You know, testosterone is energetic, um, energetic uh, energy in males and females, not just males, but mm-hmm. males and females. Mm-hmm. And but what for? What's the intention behind it? What does it lead to? Right. Two things: to yeah. buy stuff and to kill. Well, violence is killing. Oh yeah, murder, whatever. Wow. Yeah. And uh, that's the. Uh, it's part of the control program of the 
the ruling elites that want to dominate uh, society, stimulate sexuality and violence. They basically co-opted the uh, uh, the sexual drive, which supports life, which is a life-supporting drive, to get it to support the consumerism of buying and of killing, of violence and war. So the hijacking of that factory is actually done by good guys, so to speak. They want to capture that source of testosterone stimulation back and uh, they're rebels, you know, like in the Star Wars, they're mm-hmm. the rebels uh, to, uh, uh, they want to pull the plug on the empire, basically. It's yeah. like pulling the plug on that program in the media so that instead the media that are pumped out through the media um, channel the testosterone sexual drive into supporting life, into supporting the feminine, into supporting children, supporting yeah. uh, plants and animals and nature uh, and the furtherance of life and the flowering of life. Mm-hmm. So that's the story. Mm. Um, well, I you... think a lot of people can, oh, yes. can relate to that. Oh, yes. <laughs> so you heard it here first. We need to oh, yeah. hijack yes. the yes. testosterone factory. <laughs> right, right. Well, wonderful. Um, you have good people who are listening. You have Dr. Ralph Metzner's um, website. And uh, so um, if you're ready to make and a the film... Book, uh, yes. Yeah, and the yeah, book, The ahead. Expansion of Consciousness, can be ordered from our website. So there you go. Excellent, excellent. Well, Ralph, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your generosity. Well, and you're very welcome, and thank thank you for inviting me to uh, talk about these things, which I love to do. Yeah, I love to do that with you. And I'll yes. see you in Switzerland. Yes, indeed, at the conference in Basel. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. Thank you.